Welcome to Made in Australia. Ball Played's deep dive into the Australian games industry where we focus on an Australian-based studio and their upcoming game. Welcome back to Made in Australia. I'm Well Played Zach Jackson and today I'm chatting with Luke Webster from Webisoft who is developing Bilkins Folly. Luke, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks Zach. Nice to be on the show. It's great to great to have you here. I know we uh, first met at PAX you know, basically 12, 12 months ago now, uh, you were demoing Bilkins Folly um, and it's great to see that it's almost almost coming out as well. So very excited to have this chat uh, about yourself and, and, and Bilkins Folly. Yeah, no, excited to be here. Still have the uh, trauma from PAX 12 months oh. <laughs> wasn't, a, wasn't a good time or? Oh, no, it's just busy. Just, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm... I'm I like my solitude and that's like the yep. opposite. <laughs> well, good little segue that. So you're j- just like me, you're you're from my homeland of Tasmania. Yep. Is that yeah, whereabouts in Tassie are you from? Um, I'm up in the Doon Valley, so um probably uh an hour north of Hobart. Okay. All right. Uh, I was from Launceston when I lived there. Yeah, um, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Nice little uh, place. So I read somewhere, I think it might have been in in a recent press release, but you live on a farm, is is that correct? Um yeah. Or something I like don't that. Know if you, don't know if you'd call it a farm. It's a it's five acres, so it's right. more like a big block of land. But um Yeah. You know, we've got farms all around us and um you know, so it it feels very farmy, even if it's only a you know. Even though I've just got some sheep running around and um, just trying to grow stuff on it, yep. but nothing. Yeah, nice. Nothing huge. No, cool. Very nice. Uh, yeah, I mean the the um, scenery down there and in that area must be beautiful and like and like you said, bit of solitude, nice and quiet. Uh yeah. No, it is when people aren't shooting no trams guns around here. Trains. I said <laughs> <laughs> oh, so shooting guns. Yeah. Oh. You'll be out in the patio just chilling, relaxing, and then yeah. you'll just hear this. They go right. Any? Uh, I assume they're hunting or. Oh, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All righty. Well, yeah. So tell us very, very quickly um, a little about you yourself you know who is luke luke webster and you know what are you all about um yeah well i well i was a teacher um i was a teacher for a fair time like 15 years um and i'd always enjoy doing like art sort of side of things and drawing and illustration and um probably about oh god it was probably about eight or nine years ago now i um chatting with a bloke called Dan Hines who um, at the time was doing the Sneaky Bastards um, thing and he was talking about making a game and I was like, oh, mate, like, you know, do you need an artist? And, you know, I sort of insisted that I should be the one to do art on that and uh, eventually convinced him that I could, you know, do that job. Um, and, yeah, so that was sort of like a hobby at the time and... Then well, while I was teaching, um, I was teaching at high school, and they had their IT teacher 
who was running a gaming course, left for uh, greener pastures. And I was like, oh, well, actually, I'm sort of involved in game development too. I could probably pick up this job. And um, yeah, so I, I started teaching, going, went from being a history English teacher to a teacher of IT and game development. And I just loved it. Like, I got the bug and um, I just started learning like all the tool sets and um, went from a point where I was doing wildfire and just the art to thinking, well, actually, you know, I'd really love to, you know, code my own games and, you know, tell my own stories. And, um, I was able to take what I was teaching the kids, um, you know, about the fundamentals of programming and game design and, um, apply it to my own stuff. Um, and then, yeah, so from there, like, um, I did a little mobile game, which was more like a practice run to see if I could actually make a whole game, and um, then started on Bilkins Folly three years ago, and um, started reaching out to publishers because um, I really didn't want to do full-time teaching and full-time game dev at the same time because it was a bit much, um, and Armour Games picked it up. Yeah, I, I want to talk a bit a bit of, um, about that a bit later on, but I, I just want to go back. So you, you actually did the art for Wildfire because I'm actually reading our review of this and one of the call-outs we've got here, like we gave that game a 9 out of 10 and, uh, yeah, one of the call-outs was the visual and sound design are top-notch. Yeah. Um, um, so that was you. There you go. Yeah, I didn't do – so someone else did the um, characters. I did all the environment um, yeah. stuff. but That, that looks – Really good. Um, I'm, Thanks. <laughs> so the um, I'm kind of a bit. Uh, I think you may have said when when we met you at PAX that you were a teacher, but I like I completely forgotten it. But um, so that's that, that's a very uh, what's the right way to put it? <laughs> like it, it, like it's almost the backwards way of doing it. So you know, mo- most people that I speak to for this segment, you know, they have done sort of some academic thing where they've gone and learnt, you know, they've been taught, whereas, you know, you're you're the teacher um, to a lot of these kids that are getting into game dev. That's very cool, but very, very, very different, very different. So so what did you, um, uh, what did you, or how did you go about learning, uh, you know, these tools and, you know, um, and, and what to teach the, the kids, I guess? Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I had already... Um, had like a pretty decent, like all self-taught, but background in the digital art side of things. Um, and we were doing, like Wildfire was done in Game Maker. So a lot of the concepts that you're going to do in that can be applied to you know, any engine really. Um, you know, the concepts are the same. It's just how you go about applying them. Um, and yeah, so I just, you know, I, I sort of... Um, we spent a fair bit of time in Game Maker initially just because, like, even though I was doing the art, I was sort of also helping out, you know, jumping in the engine every now and then, so I was pretty familiar with it. Um, eventually, though, we sort of, like, it, it sort of, it, I sort of started going into this pattern of um, using the Construct 3 engine, which is what um, Bilkins Follies made in. Um, then we'd do a bit of Game Maker and then we'd do a bit of Unity, um, like, as a progression. Um, but... Eventually, like from like high school students, majority of it just ended up being in construct because um, you know it's a really easy tool for beginners and you can do enough with it 
um, to make fairly powerful games. Um, and actually, the first mobile game I did, it was more a, a response to the students kept asking me, "Oh, we're we're using this construct program, but you know, we we can't see game, like many games out there that have been made with it. Is it actually worth learning this?" And it's like, "Oh, I'm, you know, you can do a lot with it, guys." And um, so I made that as sort of just to prove a point to them. Um, and then when it came time to do Bilkins Folly, it was like I was um, wasn't sure. I think I prototyped it in Game Maker. Um, and then I did another prototype in Construct, and it, the prototyping time of Construct is just so quick that I had, you know, the core mechanics of the game put together, you know, in like not long at all. It was like, you know, probably a day's work. Um, and I ended up just sticking with it. It's like stick with what you know. Um, and I just taught with this engine. So by that stage, I probably taught with it for three or four years. Um, so I was really familiar with it. Um, it's um, I think there's that saying where if you teach something, you learn it twice, and it, it really does feel like that was the way for me. Um, and it, like I'm, you know, self-confessed dumbass. So like I can learn something once, and I'll just forget it um, unless I'm practicing it all the time and using it all the time. Um, and so I found that when I'm teaching with something and I'm having to constantly reiterate the same stuff, like it solidifies my own understanding of that tool um because yeah i don't i don't pick things up easily it's um it's been a bit of a struggle um from my personal ability to learn these tools yeah yeah um i've always uh, so when you yeah like so so when you are self-taught like it's always good to i guess have someone to go to or you know you know there's lots of good resources on youtube and on the internet but feel like having someone that you know and you know, trust I guess um like did you have anyone like that that you could or because you know like you said you know you're in solitude kind of thing down there in Tassie on a makeshift farm with some sheep um yeah you know did you have anyone that you could go to like that you did know like was like Dan Hines uh, could you yeah whenever you kind of got stuck or um well, I mean, with the because Dan was doing the game maker stuff, whereas I'm sort of in the construct three engine. Um, so, look, one of the one of the big knocks on construct three is it's got a really small user base. But the flip side of that is they're like really tight knit, um, and so if you jump on the construct three Discord, um, there's always someone there who is better than you, who's willing to jump in and answer a question, um, and so. Like you, you do, you tend to find the people who um, have already been there and done that and are willing to help. Um, and that's, you know, pretty much as an engine, I think that's the only way it's able to survive because, like, you jump on their forum and it's like, you know, there's three posts a day and it's like no one answers and it's just like, oh shit, this is like a dead engine or something. Then you yep. jump into their Discord and it's like, yeah, you know, there's always people posting, and there's you know, you ask a question, and usually someone will jump on right away and help you through it. Um, so that's how I was able to get a lot of support uh, with that one, um, and plus just having having to be the person like in the classroom setting, having to be the one on top and keeping ahead of the students. Um, that was sort of its own learning um, motivation for me because you know 
kit. We'll, I, we, we generally we do a class project, and I knew the direction it was going in before they did. So I knew, okay, well, I've got to have a good you know understanding of these fundamentals and stuff before I try and explain it to them. Um, and so in for my learning style, that was just spot on because you know I've, I've always struggled with you know if you give me the manual and just tell me to go away and learn it, I won't. I just can't learn that way. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of people would be in the same same sort of uh, boat. I mean, I think it's a hands-on learning is a lot easier. Like, I, I'm probably the same. Uh, like, you know, I probably can't read, just read a manual. Like, I can I know that when I taught myself Photoshop, right, or even like, you know, taught, you know guitar's a bit different, but I learnt by playing or like just stuffing around, you know, in Photoshop, having no idea like what I was doing, but just seeing like what this did kind of thing. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so told us a little, little bit, let's jump to Bilkins Folly for a little bit. So what is Bilkins Folly? Um, yeah, no, that's a good question. I've, I always struggle to answer this one. It's, um, it's a treasure hunting, uh, adventure game, um, inspired by, uh, my love of the Zelda games and Outer Worlds, and um, it's it's kind of a puzzle game. Well, it is a puzzle game, but it's um, it's more in a style of like the top-down Zelda-style games, action adventure. But there's just no action in it. So um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of uh, who was I speaking with? What, oh, I can't remember who, who it was, but we were looking at the trailer uh, and we were talking because I was saying, you know, hey, this is a game that I'm doing next. And someone mentioned that it looks similar to like a Stardew Valley. I mean, I've not played that. So I think in terms of like the visual style, like in that real kind of vibrant um, pixel art kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, um, was it? Was it? Sorry, I've, I've jumped no, in no, no. with you then. Oh, no, no, no. no. I, was gonna, I was just going to say it is... Um, with your, because uh, I've not played those Zelda games, and um, so like, yeah, like from from a visual standpoint, like it, like yeah, it is very colorful. Like yeah, it's, it's just a very colorful game. Like it's it's very nice to look at. Um, like, is the Zelda sort of stuff is is that why it like it is like that? Um, um. Quite quite vibrant kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, to a degree. So when I initially started the graphics side of things, which is really early in the... I mean, this was sort of, you know, probably a week or two after I'd started prototyping the movement and digging and stuff like that. But essentially I I got a bunch of reference images from different games that I um, really like the style of. um, And ones including that worst Stardew Valley was in there. Um, there was, you know, Zelda, Link to the Past, um, Link's Awakening, um, a bunch of other like uh, Super Nintendo games like Secret of Mana, um, and then I sort of I I did a lot of like tests on different styles with those as the reference group, um, and what I also did was um, got a color palette. I can't even remember where I found this color palette. Um, it was, I don't know. It was, it was just a color palette of, um, in fact, it might even be in the Ace Sprite color palette. Um, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm completely forgotten. But um, <laughs> that was like, okay, well, I can only use the colours from this palette to um, make the game. Um, and so when you sort of talk about like the vibrancy of the colours and that, it's because like early on I picked a palette and I just said, right, this is locked in as, yeah, I really like these colours. Uh, I'm going to use this. I'm going to apply that on this style. And I had all these different you know, reference um, images. Uh, eventually, one thing I was really like had to be pretty strict on was um, standardizing the style because I was looking at like Stardew Valley and Zelda and Secret of Mana, and you know, even though they're, yeah, they're all pixel games, but they're all totally different styles. And um, so it was like having to, you know, um, just be really strict on. If I'm going to draw one object this way, then every single other object has to be drawn in the same style. You know, the outlines have to be the same. You know, I've got a thing where I, you know, I can't let myself draw a single pixel that's, you know, unless it is sort of a um, gradiated pixel color from the one next to it, then it just can't exist. Um, so just being strict on things like that. Um, and I think that's one of the things I've sort of learnt the more I've done sort of pixel art and just how finicky it is and um, <laughs> it's a bit of a pain um, and I actually looked at also doing it more as an illustrated style um, so before I did the wildfire stuff I was doing um, making this kids illustrated book uh, and so I tried that as a, one of the mock-ups and it looked like crap um, <laughs> it's like plus you know you need to your sprites have to be like 10 times bigger for that to work, which is like performance-wise, How is that going to be an issue, especially in Construct because it's not a performing engine. Um, so, you know, but it was a lot of just testing early on and then locking in once I was happy with it, just running with it because and not being... Because, you know, once you've done, you know, 5,000 sprites or whatever it is in the game, I don't know if it's 5,000, but... You can't go easily go back and change something. It's like, oh, you know, I want to change the color, you know, this green to a different green. It's like, well, you know, that's not easy to do. Um, you know, you can't just batch it in that engine. Just, just kind of, just a sidestep. Um, just to ask one question, I've just thought of. But would uh, any future games? Would you still use Construct, or would you move to a different, different engine, or, or undecided? Uh, that's kind of funny that you mentioned that because, um, you know, being uh, right now we're sort of, what's the date today? I don't even know. It's September the, what is it? 17, yeah. 17. And, um, yeah, so there's obviously been the whole Ferrara bound uh, unity and their new pricing yeah. structure and everyone's like saying they're leaving it and going to different. Well, in the last few weeks I've actually been starting to learn unity and like <laughs> because my plan for the next game was, of course, make it in the unity engine um, right, so now yeah. i'm like sort of standing back and going well actually if they're going to change the terms of service and you know all of it, like it already was a toss-up for me between unity or unreal um, mm. because i want to do three a 3d game the next game um and so yeah like can, in terms of construct it, it's i wouldn't use it for another big project um you know there's the limitations on it uh, around performance and when you get big at levels it can you know start struggling with that um, and there's also an issue around porting it to the consoles so that's been a real challenge because there's just 
there's only two porting studios that can do Construct 3 games and they're both just flat out, like, you know, trying to get them, um, get a hold of them can be a challenge just in itself. Um, mm. Whereas, you know, the idea with Unity was when you go to port a Unity game, you know, you've got, you can pick from hundreds, probably thousands of porting studios, I don't know, but... Um, and, you know, people were talking about Godot as an engine and it's like, well, that's got a similar... I think there's a couple more porting houses that are doing Godot and I know the uh, founders are, have come up with some plan to get um, console exports happening, though I think you have to do it yourself, which would, you know, be outside my pay grade anyway. Um, mm. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I mean, it's not that I would never use Construct again. It's just, for me, it's... It's a great tool for prototyping quickly, uh, doing 2D stuff that's you know, on the smaller scale. Um, but yeah, there's certainly limitations when you want to do big stuff with it. Cool. Uh, yeah, so just, just ch- jumping back to Bilkin's Folly. So uh, it's like a, yeah, like you, like, like you said, it's like a treasure hunting kind of, um, kind of game. And, and you started three years ago did you say that you started development yeah so, so the the cool thing and i think we discussed this at, at pax last year but um it's it uses cartography in in the game so you need to you know pull out your maps and measure and do all that sinus kind of kind of stuff how how like how did you get like that idea to a to, like to you know use that as a mechanic because it's, you know, it's it's super unique and I guess how did you uh, like how much work was involved in it in actually making it work like from a game mechanic kind of kind of thing. Um, yep. So I mean, I I've always so I've always loved looking at maps. Like every every time you pick up it, you know, just. Things like Lord of the Rings as a kid, I'd pick up and I'd just look at the map, you know, and I'd just stare at it and study it. Um, and I don't know what what it is about maps that just appeals to me, but there's something there and I, I always love drawing them, making them, um, reading them, looking at them. Um, I, you know, back when I, you know, was teaching before high school, I was at primary school and, you know, I used to make maps for the kids with, you know, little um, puzzles for them to solve and, you know, I'd, I'd bring that into like our math math class when we were doing like, um, you know, geography and stuff. Um, so for me, I don't know, it's just one of those things that's always appealed to me. I'm not sure why, but, you know, with the game like really early on, like, you know, I knew it was going to be about treasure hunting um, and digging up treasure so for me it was like yeah well there's, there's got to be a pretty heavy emphasis on maps um i love games that have maps but more often than not it's they're often like a little um side quest sort of thing like there's not really i mean i think there's a couple out there but generally there's not a lot of games out there where there's like that is a key element of the game um and so yeah, I just I really wanted to bring that in, um, and use that as sort of the basis for one of the main gameplay mechanics. Yeah, I mean, was it was it difficult? Like, did you ever have any? Because I think um, God, I'm trying to remember um, from the packs they made, but I think uh, we had to like rule out like you know 
intersects like certain lines or or, or it, like yeah different parts of the map to like figure out where this like thing was buried or I guess was there ever any like challenges in getting that to work or I guess and to be fun and not too like mundane not not so much mundane but too hard yeah no definitely um it's like a simplified idea of what real cartography would be it's um um so yeah you can you know you've got a ruler and you can sort of spin it and it's you know it tells you on the ruler how many degrees but um you know realistically it's it's yeah north is always up and you know (laughs) it's like the measurements are always the same on these maps and let's say you don't have to do a lot of conversion of or anything like that it's it's um it's simplistic enough that one i could program it in because yeah it does it you know i'm not that smart that i could do a you know a full-on you know realistic style cartography where you need to use trigonometry or something to (laughs) um you know solve puzzles and um you know but it, it had to be achievable for players without making them feel stupid if you know what i mean yeah of course yeah um, because like i mean feedback already was that the game's quite challenging even on like the normal setting um and yeah so i've i've kind of lost my train of thought here actually i'm like um what was i saying but yeah no um it 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 was yeah it was a bit of a challenge but it was more of a like some of the ideas I had originally were just going to be too hard or not applicable, like not appropriate for this style of game. I guess, yeah, I guess just on the difficulty. So with things, um, is there like, uh, so the, I think there's two difficulties in the game itself. There's a normal or whatever or easy or whatever the, the wording is um, and then like a, a more challenging one. Yeah, so, yeah. So... What's the what does the increased difficulty, um, what sort of experience does that have? Like like yeah like what are the differences? Yeah, so uh, pretty much so the, the so the difficulty ratings are there's normal and then there's hard. Um, and so originally like I had it easy and normal, and then every with every playtest people were just going oh no I'm going to play a normal I don't need easy. And then they were like getting stuck really early on, and it was like, um, by virtue of that, I ended up changing the wording. And now that it's there's normal, and then there's hard, and like you know, watch playtests, and everyone's still picking normal. It's like, and they're still, you know, finding it a challenge enough. So, you know, the idea of the hard setting is um, probably about sounds about right now. Uh, in terms of what it actually impacts, um, so. With every map in the game, there's basically two versions of it. Um, so there's the normal and then there's the hard. Uh, and depending on what version you're playing on, you'll get... Um, it will change which one you see. Um, so, you know, just as a quick example, early on in the game you're on an island and you've got to um, find this spot and it, it's basically a reference to a landmark. Um, it's like sort of this ancient stone jetty thing that juts out into the water um and if you're playing on normal the whole structure is 
sort of represented on the map. Um, whereas if you're playing it on hard, it only gives you a partial outline of that, um, which it's still solvable, but you just have to, you know, probably stop and, you know, pay a little bit more attention to what you're looking at. Um, and, you know, all, I think 99, 90, probably 95% of the maps all have an alternative um, style for the hard ones. Um, it also can affect things like um, dialogue. So depending on if you're talking to a character and you're playing on hard, they'll be less helpful. Um, whereas on normal, they'll generally, they might give you a bit more of a pointer. Uh, it can change your journal logs, so um, which is where like Percy, our character, sort of writes down what's happened in the story and where he should go. Um, so playing on the harder settings, sometimes he'll miss out a hint in there. Um, I think that's about it. So it's just more like the clues and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean you can switch between the two modes at any time. So if you think you're going to start on hard and then you realise that maybe you made a mistake, um, you just go to the menu and change it over. It's just it does affect a Steam achievement though, or a trophy depending on what you're playing on. If you, if you um yeah. Yeah, well, I um, so we so this game so so Bilkins Folly comes out on October second um so not too far away and it comes out on all platforms which is very very cool so you're looking at the uh, playstation consoles xbox consoles switch and pc no uh, not, not xbox no no sorry sorry no xbox so, sorry i do recall that yes right as i said it, i was like oops i went <laughs> i went too early um but yeah so I'm, I'm actually i've got sorry it'll be um october because we're in australia it's october 3rd for us yeah sorry okay um <laughs> that's always that's always a uh, an annoying little thing with uh, release dates is you know they go oh, here's the date and then you go to to Steam for example and it's like the next day so then when you yeah. write like an article for Australia that you're like like people are like well but they said blah 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 and you're like yeah well time zones and yeah whatnot but um, I guess just on the Xbox side of things is is the game coming to Xbox at some point um, possibly like it's okay it's I think I mean. In terms of like you do a console release and there's just, I mean, not that it really affects me because I'm not the one in charge of that, but like the publisher, Armour Games, you know, they're a fairly small publisher and, mm. um, you know, they can only take on so much at one time. So the decision was made to, you know, only focus on getting it to PlayStation and um, Switch as well as the PC release because, you know, even that's like quite a handful for them. Um, and so, you know, we can, you know, we, we've still got the opportunity to put it out on Xbox, but it's just not going to be on a launch day sort of thing. Yeah. Is there, um, I, I feel like this is an obvious answer, but uh, so, so this is not, this is not a loaded question of any sorts, but uh, I guess, was there a reason that you focused on the PlayStation and the Switch before, uh, sorry, rather than Xbox? Um, oh, look, it wasn't my decision really. Um, sure. pe- okay. People who, um, you know, like they, I mean, the publisher looks at, you know, where they're most likely um, going to find sales and that's yep. your target audience because, you know, at the end of the day they've put in, well, essentially they've let, allowed me to stay home and work on this for two years. So, you know, by virtue of that they need to, you know, get their money back at some stage because, um, you know, otherwise they're going to be out of, of pocket. But So that was 
that was a decision that they made, and you know, I'm, I've got a, you know, I've been really happy with, you know, how their work, and you know, I defer to them a lot of the times because you know they've done this a lot of times, and um, so you know, if they think this is this is the market we should be targeting on release, then you know, I'm quite happy to trust them in that. Yeah, it feels like um, the the Bilkins Folly would be a very apt game to come on like a service like game pass at you know at some point in the future where you do kind of you know those indie games like like bilkins folly do get like a lot a lot of eyeballs on them i don't know how that works you know back end wise in terms of financials and stuff but you know uh i mean maybe at some stage you know that could be a thing but but yeah no the the question i was going to say is just just to touch back onto the difficulty is that i'm i just started playing through the review build uh last night or the night before and um, I got, I was having a bit of a tough time on the very first puzzle, like with the map, uh, okay, like just, yep. just how to in, interpret it because there was all those, uh, I think it's like the, the stone heads, right? Um, and I'm like, which heads am I meant to be looking at to get to figure it out? And then yeah, I've, I've finally figured it out. But um, I do get what you mean by players, you know, could get frustrated or um, stuck. Yeah. Uh, because I, you know, I nearly didn't even make it off the first island, <laughs> but no, I, we uh, figured it out in the end, so that was good. I, th- I think I was just, yeah, like I, I, I think it was my fault. I think I was reading it wrong. Um, yeah, but uh, no, I'm, I'm very excited for it so far. Um, so yeah, okay. So you play as a, so I guess the story is that you play as a, a character named Percival uh, Bilkins. So. Uh, Percy for you know is what they call him and you know he's looking for his missing relative so his grandfather and mother that's correct yeah yeah uh, and then yeah and then so how does sort of that all tie into a treasure hunting game like is this a narrative driven game or, or is or is that just you know is that premise simply just you know the foundations where you can have this guy go and hunt treasure uh, yeah, so um, like in the backstory of like Percy and his family, like he, so he, his whole family are all treasure hunters. Um, and, you know, as you play through, there's, you know, some optional side quests you can do where you sort of um, read from your grandfather's diary. And he, he talks about, you know, traveling from Ireland to all these different countries when he's younger and, you know, finding different treasures and um it's it's sort of a it all plays into i don't want to give away too much because i start getting into spoiler territory but essentially um your grandfather was tracking down a treasure and your mother has gone after him um because of this curse which is called bilkin's folly so bilkin's folly is the name of the curse um, and she's disappeared in the process of, and so both of them have now disappeared. You're actually the last remaining family member of the Bilkins um, tribe, um, and so that's why you're so desperate to, you know, find both your mother and grandfather. Um, and so um, Drayton, who is the dog that follows you around at the start of the game, is actually. Um, that's Percy's mother's dog, and um, because there's no one left at home to look after the dog, Percy's just brought him over on the um, on the voyage. Um, 
and so yeah that's so it's the whole like the whole story is sort of tied around this idea of you know what is like what's a what's the greatest treasure of all and you know what does it mean to you know for something to be you know so valuable and um can can that be does that have to be like you know a tangible good or you know is it something that's more abstract um and you know i'm trying not to you know i'm trying to say this in a way where i'm not giving away too many spoilers because you know i think that plays heavily into um the story of the game itself but yeah it, it wasn't just a it's not just a oh well, you're you're following them and you know you know you can do some yep. treasure hunting along the way it, it it's basically um you know ties everything together within the game so your dog or you know the dog drayton um Percy and Drayton's bond, like that does affect uh, the gameplay um, and the game itself. Um, so ha- how does how does uh, that work? And I, I guess what sort of benefits yep. um, does, does uh, Drayton have? Yeah, so um, this is like there's a – so there's a levelling up system in the game um, and it, it's kind of like an experience system except instead of experience you get bond points – um, so every time, um, so basically there's different ways to increase this bond. Um, there's, it's a passive, passive as well as an active, um, generation thing. Um, so just having Drayton on the screen at any one time will s- slowly increase the bond level. Um, but if you do things like you might pat the dog or pick him up or, you know, um, point him to go somewhere or if he digs if he's sniffing somewhere and you go dig it up um, all those things actively help to increase uh, that bond further Um, and every time the bar fills up you get an extra point um, which can be spent on a skill um, that allows Drayton to do another perform another task Um, so some of those you know skills are things like you can pick Drayton up so if there's a spot where he won't go himself you can pick him up and carry him across um, there's one skill where he can push things or help you push so if there's a rock that you're trying to move and it's too heavy but if you've got the skill where he can help push he'll come over and help you push and then you can move it um, you know, he can jump over things if you've unlocked that skill um, you can command him to sit certain places so if there's say there's a plate that you want him to sit on that opens a door or something um, you can tell him to sit on that while you go through the door um, so in terms of I mean this is very heavily inspired from that idea of Zelda and Link to the Past where you get a new item and it lets you get into a new spot um, and so but in this game it's like you unlock a skill with Drayton and it lets him allow you to access a new area um, and so yeah um, in terms of skill point generation too, like there's a character you meet who um, is a zombie, but uh, that's sort of neither here nor there. But he has like this is an optional thing you can do. Um, but if every time you complete one of his tasks, uh, you get a whole skill point. Um, so if you're trying to speed run the game or whatever, uh, and you need certain skills to get through certain areas to beat the game, um, one of the things you can actually do is go and complete these tasks to sort of fast track the leveling up system yeah nice very cool so uh the, uh the items that you can dig up are they 
uh, what can you like? What can you do with these? Like, do you sell them? Do they go towards your currency? How does it work? Yep. Um, so there's a few different currencies. Yeah, there's a few different categories of items that you pick up. Um, I think it's split into five. So this is a lot of this is just sort of um, game dev stuff that I use to categorize things. But so the first category is your quest items, which um, you need in order to complete a mission or you know complete a quest and progress the storyline in some way. Uh, the second category is your um, currency, which in the game we call booty because it's you know pirate theme and stuff. Uh, and this is what you can use to spend in shops. So in order to generate, most of the ways to create money in this game is to dig up, you know, treasure. Uh, and then you've got the Drayton skill points, which I just touched on a second ago, which, um, so I think there's eight of these in the game. And every time you dig one up, it's like, gives you an extra skill point to spend on Drayton. Um, then you've got uh, trash or junk. Um, which is this is where Drayton's sniffing ability comes into play like and it's a bit of a running joke where Drayton's great at sniffing out junk but he never helps you find anything useful um, and the idea of this is there's actually a this is a side quest which is the completionist sort of thing but uh, there's 64 pieces of junk in the game um, and you can use Drayton to help you find them all um, and you'll meet a character in the game who every time He'll give you a chessboard, and every time you get another piece of junk, it unlocks a single map piece for this chessboard. Um, well, the chessboard is just how you arrange the map. Um, and when you when you um, get 64 pieces of junk, you've got 64 pieces of map. It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. You put it all together, um, and it will help you to solve one of the the biggest mysteries in the game. Um, as an optional side quest sort of thing. So it's this, it's like this huge puzzle. It's like, you know, it's runs the whole length of the game, but um, at the same time, there are going to be people who beat the game and never even, you know, bother with it. So it's sort of like, it's like, um, so I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but just bear with me. Um, one of the, one of the, um, Influences, obvious influences, I think, because a lot of people bring it, is Monkey Island, Secret of Monkey Island. Uh, and one of the things I hate about Secret of Monkey Island, although it's kind of funny, is that you never find out what the actual secret was. Um, and I, I was doing this game, I was like, yeah, people are going to make these references to Monkey Island. And, you know, there's got to be some underlying secret or something that, you know, the game doesn't outwardly tell you just by doing the bare minimum which of beating the game. Uh, and so I wanted to do... You know, this underlying secret, but I knew you have to find out what the actual secret was. Like there has to be some sort of revelation there, um, and this is how you find that revelation if you're prepared to, you know, go above and beyond and you know do this massive task of you know find all these pieces of puzzle and then put this jigsaw together and you know follow this map that you've then created to all these different spots and eventually solve this additional riddle then you'll you'll presented with the actual revelation and uh, it's you know this point in the game that you know i can't even really talk about it without giving away a spoiler but uh, mm-hmm. you know it's if you imagine the secret of monkey island there's like a spot where you go and you actually find out what the secret is this would be that equivalent 
want to ask about the voice acting, right? Because uh, it's not traditional voice acting. It's it's more like, you know, they make these gibberishy sort of noises. What was the uh, reasoning behind that? Like, did you, was it just easier? Um, well, it was cheaper. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you're going to um, get, I think... I think from last memory there's like 70,000 words of dialogue or something in the game, which, you know, by Starfield standards is pretty small, but for an indie game where you're, you know, every dollar counts, it's it's a lot. And, um, you know, this has an impact on things like voice recording and localization because, you know, the more words, the more you've got to pay to have this sort of stuff done uh, and it's just wasn't going to be feasible to um, have voice actors for everything because you know I'm not a millionaire um, plus you know the gibberish kind of works like it's it goofy does, yeah. and you know it's kind of fits in with the whole theme of the game so I'm quite happy with how that ended up sounding yeah, like I think I think you're right. I think it does. It very much suits and fits the the tone and the vibe of the game that you're that you're going with. I, I guess the the question more was, you know, um, rather than having nothing, you know, because because you know there are some games that don't even have that. Um, so no, I, I think it does it adds a bit more um, immersion if you know if if you if you want to call it that uh, rather than just reading text the whole time. Yeah. Uh, the, one, one, another question I've got for you is I just want to ask, so on the, sorry, on, on Percy's travels, he meets a whole bunch of different characters uh, in the world, on the islands and whatnot, but there's also some undead that he can see. How does, uh, how does that all work? Um, well, you can see some undead. <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> Like I never set out to make a historically accurate game or a you know sensible game. It's um, you know there's there's plot points where you know just being able to speak to someone who's dead is a handy thing, and um, you know it's it's he he makes a reference to it at some point in the game where how handy it is that he can actually see dead people. Um, but yeah, like I guess in terms of storytelling it's like kind of a um you know it's kind of like a tool like you, you can speak to the dead so you can bring these characters in who otherwise you'd have to put diary entries down or something like that um and you know it's it's pretty selective who you can speak to it's like there are other dead people in the game like you come across a pile of bones and you, you can't talk to it it's just like oh yeah it's just a pile of bones but you know, it's it's only some people, some ghosts you can speak to, I guess. But um, yeah. you know, it's I I kind of was gonna lean into the whole goofy voodoo Caribbean sort of yeah, zombies and like magic and all this stuff, and but I kind of it didn't happen. Then I was like, oh, it's just gonna seem like a total rip off of Monkey Island if I do that. Um, and but you know at the same time I was like well yeah you know, I've I've got these characters this is like I think literally the first character NPC I made was a ghost and it's like well it's kind of embedded within the game that you can speak to dead people and you know I'm just gonna leave it in there. 
Yeah. Nice. All right, I, I want to jump back and I want to talk a little bit about um, the studio just again. So is this the, is, is the entire game made just by yourself or have you had contractors or anything like that? Uh, yeah, so I've got um, Jamal Green does all the music. Um, he came on really early actually. He was like even before, it's like six months into development and because um, I was posting stuff on Twitter back then. And he was like, oh, you know, I really like this. I want to write some music. And, I mean, straight up, like, you know, he's messaged me over Twitter. So generally, you, quite often you're sort of a bit wary because, like, you do get a lot of people messaging you and, like, they don't even make reference to the game. It's, like, generic. I don't know how many of these messages they send out. But it's like, oh, look, thanks, but, you know, it's it's way too early and... um but then I had a, I always make a point of checking out people's profiles and like I checked out some of his music. It's actually pretty good music. Like I actually like what he's done. And I'm like, oh, you know, thanks, but like, yeah, you know, I, you know, we could talk later. Like I actually like your stuff. Uh, and he was like, he was really insistent. And he was like, oh, you know, I, I really just want to make some music. Like he felt like sort of inspired by the graphics and that. And I was like, and like I'm like, well, I mean, you can, but you know, I can't guarantee you anything and um you know it's you know like i don't even have a publisher like i don't have any money and it's like i'm i'm not going to bring people on with the promise of maybe being able to make some money because that's not how i work um but yeah he was like no no i've got to do this (laughs) so he did and um he made some music and you know we went back and forth a bit on it and eventually like we we came we settled on a track and it it's the um track that plays when you load the game up like it, it just fits so nicely i think and um so yeah i mean he's been on close to the start of the game like he's been and you know it was good when i got the publisher deal because then i could actually pay him um you know free services um so jamal's been on for a long time and then um probably it's probably close to a year ago now i got a grant from screen australia um they were doing the games expansion pack grants and um, it allowed me to bring on, so the grant was for an animator and for a sound designer, um, and so both of those guys, both of those groups were from Tassie. Um, so we'll be uh, we'll basically when you start the game and like the animations play and all that, that's by a um, animation studio down here in Tassie, um, and all the sound effects are by another Tassie bloke who. Um, I think he works for the uni actually, but um, so in terms of what I don't do, I don't do any sounds, um, and I don't do the animations for the cutscenes. So all that's handled by different groups. Yeah, nice. I, I think like from from what I've played, which is you know quite quite a small little sampling of of the of the big game, but um, the animations are very good for, um, so far. So yeah, they've done a a great job with that. I want to ask how how did the publishing deal with Armor Games actually come about? Like how yeah like how did it all because because you've only because I think you said that you know you you helped out on Wildfire and then you developed uh, I think it's called is it Cracked Crusaders is that what it's called yeah and you know and then somehow well not somehow but, you know but then with your new title you've um you've secured a publisher so yeah how did it all come about yeah so um. Well, early on, I knew I was going to use a publisher. Um, 
because and this is so wildfire even though i enjoyed working on it it dragged out because we all had full-time jobs um i think it was like six or seven years in the end to get to release which is a, a ridiculously long time for sort of a 2d platformer um and you know i think my wife was pretty fed up with me at that point because i'd go to work i'd come home i'd work on that um and you know she sort of feels like I'm spreading myself too thin and you know my family's there and you know you've still got to you know you got to do the you know the family stuff or you know because that's important too so time becomes a real issue when you're trying to do the indie dev thing with a with a job and with a family and you know you you don't have a lot of time for anything else Um, and so and I jumped out of like wildfire was done and I just like oh, I want to make this mobile game, and she was just like rolling her eyes. I was like, you know, come on, like no, I'm just going to do it. So I spent a year making a mobile game just for the fun of it, and um, even that, even though it was a small game, um, you know, a year of development, um, there was still a lot of work in it, and it, it was like, yeah, like I'm, I probably shouldn't be doing this with a full time job. Um, and, you know, I did the mobile game. I said to my wife, oh, like, I've got this other idea for this game. She's like, what the fuck? Like, you know, are you serious? <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, but, but I made a promise to her. I said, look, I'm going I'm to work on it for a year. I'm going to prototype some stuff and I'm going to get a publisher. And if I don't get a publisher, I'm not going to make this game. That's it. I'm just going to walk away from game dev because, you know, I need to have a life. Like, you know, I can't go from work to home to work on computer back to work you know that can't be my life so like, all right well fair enough if you're gonna do that and um so yeah i like um put this prototype together it took about a year um it was um pretty solid i felt and um i started you know like by this time i had had quite a lot of um like a bit of like interest on social media because every week I do the screenshot Saturday stuff and post on there and people would repost it and especially back then I'd sort of you know I was keeping track of who was reposting it or who was quoting it or whatever and um one of the people that like quote reposted oh it's retweeted back then yeah retweeted it um was um this bloke Sean McKenzie and um I just sort of absently sort of he, he made some comment about the animation or and I, I just sort of checked out his profile I was like oh he's a producer at Armour Games no that's pretty interesting uh, and so I messaged him and um, I said oh look I'm working on this game I'm actually in the process now of um, looking for publishers and would you be interested in me um, submitting this for you know for you to have a look at uh, he's like, yep, yep, check, send it through. And so I did. Um, at the same time, I was speaking to a few other publishers. Um, <clears throat> this is all while sort of still teaching full time. Um, and so I got to the point where it was like, I, I think I had three offers on the table. And it was like, I had to pick. And it was like, end of term was coming up and I knew I had to give in two weeks notice if I was quitting teaching well you know so they could find someone to replace me and it was like so I um you know chatting to Sean again like you know is this going to work and they're like yeah like we think we can make it work and 
you know, out of all the publishers that were on the table, like for me, like they were like the top pick because you know you you you've got a publisher offer and you got to look at what they're producing, like what games have they already put out, uh, are the games they're putting out are they successful or not, um, and yeah, like Armor Games, like they put out games and they all do well. They don't have games that just are complete flops or whatever. Um, plus, you know. One of the big influences early on for my art style was a game called Kingdom Rush, and you know that was originally an armor game. Like this was back when it was still Flash, and they were online and that. Um, so it felt almost um, like this was you know the the right fit for me. Um, and so you know I was able to put in my resignation from teaching, and much to the dismay of all the kids there. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, like, and that's that's how it happened. Like, it was, like, it was so much work to get to that point, and you know, then I've gone from working full time teaching to and doing the game dev stuff to suddenly just being a full time indie dev supported by a publisher, and it was like the change in lifestyle. And like, you know, my wife said, "Oh, she's so she's just loves how much happier I am." Like not teaching and doing the game dev stuff so like she reckons I'm like a different person which probably fair enough like I'm I can take a step back every now and then and breathe and you know relax and you know we can go places because I'm not feeling like I'm constantly having to sort of beat this demon of time that's you know always lurking over us and um, you know it, it takes takes so much away from your livelihood if you're trying to do full-time dev and full-time work at the same time it's it's almost um just like a sacrifice that you know you can't i don't know i, I don't i couldn't maintain it for much longer um and so yeah like i unless i was financially independent like i wouldn't do another game without a publisher because it does just make such a huge difference and that's not even counting all the stuff they do behind the scenes that you know i wouldn't have even thought of until i've been working alongside them Mm. do you ever do you ever miss teaching or no um (laughs) i'm not that good a shot but uh (laughs) no like in some ways i think i do but um certainly like i don't want to get into the whole politics of it but the teaching the way teaching was when I started compared to how it is when I left um, the environment of the administration and the bureaucracy has just basically fucked that whole system. Like it's really like it's hard not to be emotional about like when I see all the changes that have been um, from top down like happened um, and you know it affects every aspect of teaching and um, I, you know, it's they've done so much. Like this is the administrators; they've done so much damage to teaching as a, you know, body of professionals and students. And you know, I don't think it will ever recover from it because you know it's, you know, I mean, it's been a slow slide into a decline of abyss that you know is, you know, it's pretty harrowing to see, and you know. I um I don't think I would ever go back just for that just for the um the fact that I couldn't cope with you know the bureauc- bureaucracy of it and um, the managers who 
are trying to steer the ship, but you, you know, well, they're not steering the ship in the right way. That's that's for sure. Mm. So um, I, I love being in the class with the kids, especially like the ones that are keen to learn or you know keen to like keen to be there even. Um, and um, you know that became harder and harder over the years because you know there's just fundamental problems with the way education is run in I think the Western world, not just Australia. You, you said that you were spreading yourself too thin. I, I guess how how much time do you spend developing uh, Bilkins Folly? Like you know, every day do you find yourself because you're out like on this on this big big block of land with yeah? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume you know not much else to do out there. Um, yeah, do you find yourself? I guess crunching would be probably the best word for it. You know, do you do you work excessive amount of hours or you know what what's that what's that balance kind of like i don't know that crunch would be the right word i like i've got a i'm obsessive to the point where i'll hyper focus on something um but i don't necessarily feel compelled by external forces by that it's just the way i tend to run um over so over the last two years up until the game was finished, because I mean the game's essentially finished now. We're just waiting for release. But um, I think on average, I was I was generally doing seven days a week, between ten and twelve hours a day working on it. Um, as we were coming to, there was this period there where it had to be sort of completed, um, and I was running out of time, and I think I sort of dialed up a bit. But you, you get too far beyond that, and you just your mind starts melting into some sort of liquid pot and it's like you lose track of time anyway. So, you know, I'd, I'd be working on it. I don't know. I think at the peak there, I was probably 14 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week for a few weeks there. Um, having said that, though, like the, the, I don't think the crunch period itself was too great because like I consistently just work on it all the time over the two-year period. Like, I don't generally let things get away from me. Um, and, yeah, like, I think over, over... I think there were probably... I think I've worked out there's less than 10 days over that two-year period where I didn't touch it at all, like, where I stepped away for the days. Like, you know, Christmas, for example. Like, I just, oh, well, I'm not going to... I'm not even going to boot the program up. I'm just not going to think about it today. Um, but, you know, I... At the same time, it's like I'm doing what I love, and so I don't feel like I don't feel it's a bad thing. Like I, you know, even there, there were days where I'd say, "Oh, you know, I I probably should take a break from. It. I'm going to play a video game, or I'm going to go out and do something." And it's like, you know, oh, what am I going to do? Like I just want to keep working on my game. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, like the game's done now. Um, and it's like there's a few little bits and pieces of media stuff like this, which I'm doing. But um, other than that, I'm sort of like twiddling my thumbs at the moment. Thinking, oh, well, maybe I should start the next one. Or, you know, I, I started ripping out a bathroom. And I'm just doing some renovation just to keep busy. Like, um, and then, you know, I'm just, I've got to find things to do. Like, I'm not, I don't know, I can't sit still. I've got to be like constantly working, I think. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, I guess 
this might be a question that you can't answer, but are there any ideas that you can share for for your next game or do you want to keep them locked up in a chest? Uh, uh, honestly, I'm not even at the stage where I'm prototyping yet, so um, I'll probably... I've got a, I've actually got a couple of different ideas, and so yeah, no, I probably wouldn't share them at this point because that's fair. Um, they're I thought maybe. unrelated to like Bilkins Folly, um, and this is the other yeah. thing. Like, I'm not committing to anything till after the release because I don't know what sort of financial position I'm going to be in over the next couple of years. It could flop, and I could be back teaching or relief teaching or whatever, just to make ends meet, or it could do above what I expected and I'm, you know, financially just free to do whatever I want. But yeah. I, I can't make a ch- I can't make any sort of decisions until the game has come out. That's fair. That's fair. So this is your f- I mean yeah, this is your your first game. How how have you found yeah, sorry, how have you found the the whole process, you know, the whole experience of um developing uh you know to basically on the verge of releasing a game um i mean it's yeah i mean it's the first big one i've done myself but it's not like the first one i've been involved in so um i think i mean i found in terms of the game itself i found it to be like a pretty easy process in terms of um, there's not been a moment where I've been absolutely shitting myself in panic or that I wasn't going to get it done. Um, there were some question marks around the porting because that's sort of, that's, you know, you outsource that to a, a porting studio and there was a few concerns around that. Um, but I think... And I mean, it comes back to the idea of having a publisher there who's supporting you f- through the whole process. And I think having someone there who, you know, like Sean, who the who's the producer there, um, touching base with him every week, and you know, making sure things are on track or if things need to be adjusted, or um, you know, I think that's keeping you grounded um, and making sure you're not, you know, oh, say something to him, oh, you know, I think this game should have. Uh, you know, crafting and farming, and it's like, yeah, no, that's probably not not something to add at this stage, sort of thing, because mm. you know, you, you, you feature creep will kill you. Um, and yeah, just having someone who's able to keep you down to earth through the whole process, um, who's also invested in it as well, um, so they're not just going to take, you know, hear your ideas and just say, oh yeah, that's great, go for it, which you know, sometimes you. You might say that to like a friend or family member, and like they'll just, you know, yes, 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 okay, yep. Uh, but actually, having someone who's been through it a lot of times and experienced with the process, and they can just keep you, you know, you, you basically attach yourself to them. Um, I heard a really good quote years ago, and I think I've, you know, brought it like I've, you know, adhered to it, and it's like surround yourself with people who are smarter or better than you. Um, and that's what I've done is like I've, I've, you know, signed with a publisher who's done it all and there's people who are, have just better experience than me and, you know, I, I defer to them because, you know, you've got to, you've got to give away um, a certain amount of um, 
control because otherwise, you know, who am I? I'm just a guy sitting in Tassie, you know, looking out the window and sheep and, you know, I don't know how to release a game. So I'll let, you know, I'll let the people who have done it guide me. With uh, with Tassie, how um, I guess how big is the is the the game dev scene there, and yeah, well, what's the what's the um, what's the community like? Uh, yeah, like there's, I mean, it's a small community, um, but you know, it's there. There's a Taz Game Makers group, um, who like have been. Oh, they've been together for probably seven or eight years themselves. Um, and so they have like a meet-up in Hobart and I think there's one up north as well um, every month or so. And they've got a – there's a maker space where um, they go into Hobart and I think it's called Enterprise and, you know, you can work there and um, just like – I try and get there to the group to get togethers when I can, but I mean I'm kind of antisocial in a lot of ways, and you know I find excuses not to be in social environments. Um, mm. But we've all got our flaws. Um, but yeah, like they are. If you're looking, if you're in Tassie and you're, you know, looking to for guidance and you don't know where to start, then go along to one of these get-togethers and um, chat to these. Um, people and you know there's also um screen tasmania who are pretty involved um so and they were the ones that well they helped get us to pax last year um and they i think trades tasmania was part of that too um but yeah like screen tasmania is definitely like i think they like I know, Screen Victoria is like huge into game, like game, video games, and supporting them. And I think Screen Tasmania are sort of trying to follow that line of you know, um, supporting the game developers as a new form of um, media or growth within the um, state. Um, so they've been good for um, you know a bit of external support as well. I want to go right back to, I guess, what 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 are your earliest memories of video games, and you know, what about them did you love, you know, and how did that, uh, I guess, make you go on to want to be a game developer? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I was born in nineteen eighty, so my earliest memories were sort of going to my cousin's house and they had I think it was the Atari and um, I think it was like Smurfs or something it was I mean it was so bad and like we I, I was fascinated by how you know you can move this joystick and the you'd see it move on the screen and um, you know my, my cousins were spoiled they had all the, they got the Commodore 64 next and you know I'd go over and check it out and, like, just, again, just, like, love it. And I'd see, I'd go into news agency or wherever you'd go to um, get magazines back then and I'd look at the magazines for the video game. Um, like, oh, I can't even remember what they were called. Oh, there was one back then. I can't even remember what it was called. But, like, I'd just sit there, like, you know, 
for half hour just <laughs> in the news agency. I was surprised I wasn't just told to leave, but just looking at all the pictures and just fascinated by it. And eventually we, um, my, like I kept saying, like, I want to make games. I want to. I didn't even have a computer, but yeah, I want to make games. And my parents eventually um, caved in, and we got the Amiga five hundred. And so, yeah, you know, that was my first real ex- like introduction to a like my own home machine and uh you know uh, i think it came with like um it was like these bundled discs and like you'd you'd move this character left or right and you'd i think they were in a spaceship and it was like you had to it was like a spelling game you'd have to write the correct spelling to open a door or whatever and um yeah i was just again just completely fascinated by this whole concept and um you know, I, I I maintained that I wanted to be making games, and um, after a while, like uh, there was, um, uh, met this guy, and he was he was older than me. He was probably ten years old, and he said, "Oh yeah, like if you if you want to make games on the Amiga, you can do it." And I was like, "Oh, I'd love to. Like, I, I, this is what I want to be doing." And he's like, "Oh yeah, well I can help you with that." I'm like, oh, beauty, like you know. That's this is exactly what I want, and so he's like, he's just giving me this manual, and I think it was for, I think the the language was Amiga DOS or it was something like that, Ami DOS or something, and like he was like, okay, well all you need to do is read this manual, um, and when you've read that one, this like was like thick, this is like, you know, a massive brick, and he was like, yeah, and if you once you finish that one, I'll give you the second one. I'm like, oh shit, like this looks hard. <laughs> so I went away and like, I started reading this and I'm like, I think I got two pages in and like it was just like reading a different language. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm reading. Like, yeah, I'm still a kid, like I'm dumb as shit. And, um, you know, I just, I gave up. Like, it was like, I don't think I can actually do this. And um, it wasn't until years and years and years later and, um, like I always had this fascination about making games, even as a you know, young adult who's not even working on computers. Um, but it wasn't until like tools like Game Maker and Unity and then Construct came about, and you know the documentation for these, and you know you've got so many resources now, and they're all tailored at you know different learning styles, and you know if you can't read a manual, you can still learn to do this, and it's like. This is what I needed. This is how, you know, this is what I needed back in the 80s when I was... Because, you know, back then you had to be some sort of savant to be able to make a game, I think, because, you know, it wasn't for everyone. But, you know, these days it's like a different world. Uh, we're just spoilt for, you know, what, we've, what we can do with it. Yeah, like, I mean, <clears throat> technology would have moved or you know it's, it's come a long long way i guess from when you first started on on that first machine so um yeah like some of the technology available now is crazy you know it's you you, you know you're talking about moving to unreal and then you, you you know you look at some of the stuff that that people are putting out in unreal 5 and it's you know super realistic and you know, back in the old days of like was it like 16 bit or even like 8 bit probably maybe back then uh-huh. Yeah, um, if, if that. If that, right, yeah. I mean, I, were there any games other than uh, um, the Zelda games that you mentioned and, and that, that you that you grew up and, and really loved playing? Um, 
I mean, yeah, like, I mean, the one that sticks out, and it's not that I liked the game, but I loved the art style, and it was um, Don Bluth's Dragon's Lair. And um, I remember, like, this was after I'd obviously gotten the Amiga, and I was like, you know, and before I discovered piracy was a thing on the Amiga, so I was like, twice a year I was allowed to get a game, once for my birthday, once for Christmas or whatever. But, you know, there was this game, and I was just obsessing over the box in the game store, and um, so I've got to have this game. It was like $110, like, and I know we, we complain about prices of games going up these days, but back then they were like, you know, $100, $110 for these games that, you know, and, you know, if you bought one that you didn't like, tough luck sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I must have done a bunch of jobs or I, I made some money somehow and um, I saved up and I bought this Dragon's Lair. And I remember, like, the graphics on it were just, it was like playing a cartoon which, you know, to a kid is just amazing. But then you start playing the actual game and the gameplay is just horrendous. It's like, it's literally just quick time event after quick time event. And, you you know, you've got to guess, like there's not, you know, he's walking along a bridge. You've got to guess what way to press on the stick or whether you've got to press the button at the exact time. And that was it. That was the gameplay. And it was like, this is shit. But it looks so good that I, and plus, you know, like I didn't have many games because, you know, games are expensive and, you know, so I'm going to just keep playing this crap game because, and um, eventually I just, you learn, you learn how to beat the game by what's happening on the screen. Like, oh, he's walking this way. you got to press this way on the stick. That's it. Oh, you know, I think it was like there's this one stage where these balls are, marbles are sort of coming down and you you got to time jumping up and, you know, you just press up on the stick and he you know, if you do it in the right time, he, you get this little animation of him getting through. It's like, you know, and then if you die like three times, then you go start all the way back at the start of the game and do it all again. And it's like, like for me, that's probably my first memory of a game that really sticks out. And the other one that really sticks out is um, Jaws on the Amiga because I love the movie... Um, and I got the game, I got the box. Yeah, you know, I love the boxes. Like the boxes were the best things about games back then. And um, you know, the game itself sucked again. Like this is just typical Amiga, you know, marketing. You you buy the game for the box and then, you know, the game itself is terrible. But, you know, there was one other kid in my in my school who had an Amiga and I took the box in and I was like, Oh, you know, I got this and he borrowed it. Then he started lending me some of his game and um yeah, we ended up becoming like best friends, and it's like I still, you know, he lives in Melbourne, and you know, when I go over there, even these days, like I go and visit him, and we hang out and stuff, and it's like it was all just this friendship that was built out of, you know, we were the only two kids at school who had the Amiga. Did um sorry uh, is um oh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, is Bilkins Folly is that getting a physical copy at all, or is it just going to be a digital release? Um. Look, as of this stage, it's only digital. There is a um, group that do, this is for the Switch, they do physical copies for the Switch, um, but at this stage it's um, only digital. Okay, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, your um, 
talking about the box arts and, you know, getting the box and I wasn't sure if you were going to try and get a physical copy of your own game, walk into uh, the local game shop in, in the uh, Derwent Valley there. What shop? <laughs> uh, yeah, cool. Very nice. There's a couple more questions I got here. For, uh, what, what has been the most challenging aspect or thing about yeah about running WebiSoft? Um, Probably. Yeah. And like, and I guess what's the what are the what are the key lessons that you've learned? I guess I mean the biggest challenge for me was so when I applied for this the grant for Screen Australia you had to be a corporate entity to apply. And I was like, I'm denied, but I mean, the grants were, you know, valuable. But, and so I, I, um, I ended up becoming an actual official company and it was like, oh, it was a massive pain in the ass and um, forms to fill out and you have to sign these declarations. And I was like, I'm glad I got the grant because otherwise I would be spewing. Like, because um, yeah. then it like there's tax implications because now you're a company and not just a person, and you know I oh my head I, I don't even want to think about it. Like I I get anxious just thinking about all this tax stuff that I'm meant to do, and I'll just like I don't want to touch it. And um, it reminds me I should probably go speak to an accountant. But <laughs> <laughs> for me, that's the hardest bit is not the not the development of the game, it's doing the external stuff like, yeah. you know, the stuff that you would ideally pay like, you know, an accountant and a secretary and to do, and, you know, so you don't have to actually think about it because, you know, business, you know, business stuff just doesn't interest me at all and, um, you know, I don't really want to be trying to manage books or look at, you know, spreadsheets with balances or you know like yeah i just want to make games do um do you think that for your next project you'll seek out a publisher again or or is going self-published an option that you've considered or um well look like i said before it does depend on what happens with the release um but i mean having said that like even if i was and i've I say this genuinely, like even if I was completely financially independent, you know, say the game did beyond expectations, um, I would probably still want a publisher there just because I've seen how much work they do, um, you know, working with the, you know, doing all the QA, doing all the, you know, dealing with the consoles and the platforms and the storefronts and, um, you know, managing the porting side of things and, um, you know, taking over the social media aspects of things. Like they do, a good publisher I think is worth their weight in gold. Um, on the flip side, I think a bad publisher would could, you know, destroy you as well. Um, so, but, you know, I think, I think in terms of where I am having just done this one and thinking about the next one, like a publisher would be something that I would... Be keen to maintain, um, even if it wasn't a case of me needing to draw money off them. Um, just knowing all the um, things that they can bring to the table. All right. Well, we might uh, we might head towards the finish line. Are you are you going to be at PAX 
this year or taking the year off? No, I um, couldn't bring myself to do it twice, two years in a row. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Look, I know I should probably have gone, but yeah. I mean, it's right on the release date too, so that would have been a good little... Oh, don't say that. It's a little boost. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> there was some discussion about, I think, PAX West or PAX East or one of those. Okay. Um, but in the US, yeah. Um, but, but I mean, because the publisher I'm with is US based. Um, not that I'd yep. probably go over, but possibly have a Bilkins Folly booth there, and possibly I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> to be advised. What? What? What was? Uh, um, what was the player feedback like last year? Yeah, it was really good. At PAX, um, I think. In terms of so, in terms of that sort of public testing space, I found one of the challenges was, I mean, your gen, your general playthrough is sort of fifteen, twenty, twenty five minutes, and so it's not great for getting like a whole bunch of people through. Um, yeah. Like if you've got like I saw like the party games and that they'd get people jump on for five minutes, check it out, they see what it is, and that. Whereas the demo I built for PAX, which is the same one I think, very close to the same one I used for NextFest, um, it's sort of like a game where you want to sit back and chill out and play through at your own pace and relax to the music. and like The whole game was meant to be sort of like this relaxing um, game that you can play with no sort of anxiety about dying or time limits or anything. And then you put it into like a environment like packs where it's like noise and people pushing up against you and you know it's like well is this even like is that <laughs> you know this is such an antithesis to what the, the type of mood i was trying to create with the game it's like i needed a soundproof room or something to let people play but i mean you could probably say that with about a ton of games that are there i guess it's just the nature of the beast yeah i think um with with packs it can be quite hard like if you you know, like you said, if it's noisy or if you kind of, you know, those first five or so minutes that you play maybe a game, you know, don't necessarily, I think it's hard not like not to judge that sometimes. Like, you, you know, you might walk away from a demo and go, you know, this is a bit shit or, you know, or, or not, not for me or whatever. But then you actually play it in your own time, you know, without those, you know, background uh, distractions and that. And you know, and it's a vastly different sort of, um, you know, it you know it can change your mind, kind of thing. So, yeah, like I, I think for a game like like Bilkins Folly, that would be one of the harder ones to kind of demo at PAX, um, just because of, I guess that not 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 so much like the learning curve, but there is like you know you got to kind of, it's you know it's a puzzly sort of game, so it's not the kind of sometimes it's not the best environment to be racking your brain, you know, when you're being on your feet all day and last thing you want to do is solve a puzzle yeah um but no it's good i mean i'm 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 glad that uh, the feedback was good and i and i and i really hope that the launch goes goes well for you i mean from from what i've played so far and um you know from that build that you sent a while back and um and the and the review thing i've got like i, I think it's quite a fun little chill game and i think yeah i, I think people are going to 
Love it. What I do have a question for you, and, and you may not be able to answer this because this might be a, a publisher sort of question, but I always find that Aussie or even sort of like indie kind of games, right, they're very quick to announce their date as in like um, October. I think you what you only announced the release date like, what, like a week ago. Yep. And it's like, hey, the game's coming out in a month. Um, is there a reason for that or just? Yeah, I mean, you're sort of... Yeah, so there is a reason for that, and it's um, you, you're kind of like the the little mouse who's trying to get around the stomping elephants, and yeah. you know we've just had Starfield came out, and that's a huge game, and you know there's heaps of games coming later, end of October, and um, it was like we sort of like we had to come up with a date, and it's like. I think the produ- my producer says like there's no good day to um, release a game. There's only bad ones. Um, basically, it was like we had three dates that we looked at, and it was like one was like late September, which was sort of out just due to what was being released at that time, and then I think one was November. It's like I really didn't want to go into November because you know at this point it's kind of like I'm just sitting here waiting. Um, and then it was like, we, we, well, the PR company sort of said, oh, well, you know, you could do early October, get in before a lot of these games come out later in October. Um, but it also gives you a bit of, you know, breathing space after like, you know, Starfield's come out, which, um, I, yeah, that's just a behemoth. Um, yeah. and, and even though like it's not a competitor to Bilkins because we're, it's a totally different game, it's still, just trying to get the attention span, attention of you know, Players people and, like yeah, yourself and yeah, like the reviewers and whatnot. Um, and so yeah, it was just like we could slot you in here, and um, you know, it's going to be a bit of a rush to get the because tr- the trailer was sort of close to being done at that stage when we decided on. It was like, oh well, you know, we'll get it f- polished and sent out, and let's lock it in and. Um, and the other thing we we're waiting on was like all oh, your console certification had to come through before you can announce a day, um, and so that when that came through it was like okay well now we can pick a day like when do we do it? And it's like well I just want it I want it out there like I prefer sooner rather than later um, because like I've mentioned you know I can't make decisions for the future without having some understanding of how this is going to go because it's you know there's stuff riding on it, um, and it, I think in the end I just said look. Um, I probably shouldn't have any input into the release date because, like, my, like, you know, spend three years on this, but you don't want to fuck it up by just rushing it out the door. Um, and so I said, look, I'll defer to you guys. Um, and they said, look, we can do October 2nd. Um, and that's like, oh, yep, beauty. Let's let's go with that. So that that's sort of the, the reason why, like, the announcement trailer had to get rushed to get finished for the announcement date um, for that um, announcement. But, um, but yeah, you just, you just sort of... You've got to look at what else is coming out and especially being a small game, like, you just can't compete with, you know, the attention of these big juggernauts. Yeah, well, October 2nd, Bilkins Folly on uh, PlayStation, so PS4, PS5 and Switch and PC. Uh, is it coming just, just to Steam or are we getting like multiple storefronts? Uh, good old games. It'll be on there. Okay. Very cool. 
do we have do we have a price? Do we have an Australian price? Um, so I think it's going to be roughly thirty Australian. It's sort of like what's the conversion rate? It's maybe twenty nine fifty Australian. I think. Okay. All right, so it's pretty pretty decently priced, um, which is very cool. All right, well, yeah, I mean, Luke, thank, thanks for having this chat. Th- thanks for being on the on the show. Um, thanks it's been for great to that. chat to another another Taswegian. <laughs> um, and yeah, wish you all the best for for the for the release of Bilkins Folly. And you know, we look forward to uh, seeing what you do next. And you know, if it's three D, you know, I'm excited to see. What uh, what you can come up with, um, and hopefully Unity, uh, you know, <laughs> takes back what they've um, done because yeah, it's a baffling move. Oh mate, um, it is just the biggest drama, isn't it? It's surprise. I mean, yeah, well, I mean the thing is though, like I know you're wrapping up and now I'm talking about it, like, like if they're going to change. Terms of service like that, retroactively, like you just that's nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, yeah, I mean, the backlash has been well and truly fair. So, um, I guess you know, we'll see what happens. I, um, I assume many, 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 well, I guess the entire industry is watching to see what they do and who we am, whether they walk back what they've done. But so far, they're holding firm on, on a few things, but. I mean, if if developers start, you know, jumping ship left, right, and center, uh, you know, and you know, all it would, you know, all it could possibly take is for Unreal to come out with a offer of some degree, you know, that that entices developers to jump ship. Or so, watch this space, I guess. But uh, Luke, thank you again. Thanks, sir. Uh, and if if people want to check out um, yourself or the studio, where's the, where's the best place to find you? Um. Probably just uh, bilkinsfolly.com would be. All right. Yep. Cool. All righty. Luke, thanks again. Have a great uh, rest of your Sunday and good luck with launch. And everyone, thank you for listening. You can check out the content on www.well-play.com.au and we will see you next time.